first time with his father, who's an 80-year-old practicing internist um, in September. He occasionally brings his brother as well, who was also a, a surgeon. Um, oh, he did have a um, lap coli about two years before that with a liver biopsy at the time. That, you know, they did do a, a biopsy. Um, he doesn't drink, uh, smoke, or um, use drugs. <clears throat> okay, he's allergic to aspirin and Bactrim, like many of our patients who have had HIV for a long time. He's on a fixed-dose combination tenofovir uh, FTC with ritonavir and adizanavir. He also takes factor VIII, and he had a long history of taking DDI and D4T in the past. And you could tell that, actually, on one, the minute you walk into the room, because his cheeks were almost meeting in the center. Uh, he had such bad facial um, <clears throat> lipoatrophy. However, his BMI was 34, uh, and, he, uh, and he had a, a, a very large, actually, uh, liver and spleen. No ascites, um, no edema, no spiders, no obvious signs of um, uh, or stigmata of uh, decompensated liver disease. Now, the MRI at the same time uh, showed a cirrhotic liver with a big spleen, uh, spontaneous spleno-renal shunt, which is kind of anatomically important. And I think for the non-liver people, that's something we need to sort of keep in the back of our head um, because he's lucky uh, that he had, because DDI and D4T is a whole different lecture, but I'll just stop for a second here, okay, are the causes of non-cirrhotic portal hypertension. So we have a paper that's going in uh, this week, actually about 65 cases of non-serotic portal hypertension from GDI. It doesn't matter if you took it 10 years ago and stopped 11 years ago or 9 years ago. Okay, you can still have it now, uh, and it's still really important. And the first presentation of non-serotic portal hypertension is variceal bleeding. Uh, and the, the mortality rate of your first variceal bleed is 35%. So when you have one of those patients with facial atrophy and um, um, the history of DDI use, okay, just make sure you think about it. The only reason this guy didn't bleed from varices is because he had a spontaneous decompression shunt uh, on his own. So he's, he's actually, the blood is, is actually uh, decompressing the varices by going from the, the splenic vein to the renal vein. Uh, he also has a 3 by 2 centimeter liver nodule with uptake in three phases. That third phase of when you're looking for HCCs, HCCs look for the third phase. Ask your radiologist to make sure they do that third phase. They don't do that in the community, okay, unless you ask them for it because it's more work and they don't get paid for it. So ask them for a, the, the triple phase, CT or MRI, okay, for the venous washout phase. Very important. The radiologist, the patient, does not believe this is an HCC at the time. Liver biopsy showed uh, clear cirrhosis with, I think, grade 3 inflammation. As, as if liver enzymes were slightly elevated as well. And as, uh, his last endoscopy showed only grade 1 varices. I showed you he already had his spontaneous lucky shunt. Um, so we don't have to worry too much about portal hypertension, although typically with a patient with DDI, I would be very worried about portal hypertension. Okay, so which factor predicts the, a poor prognosis? The patient is a physician. He has three young children. He's accompanied by his father, who's also a physician. He's had a biopsy firm cirrhosis for at least two years before a liver opinion, or he has a long history of DDI and D4T use. Okay, so you can vote now, actually. Ten seconds. Some of these are slightly facetious. 
So you can just take those out. But they're all true. Uh, as you <laughs> okay, number four. Yeah, he's sitting on his cirrhosis for two years here. I'm sorry. That's, I don't think that's a good idea, um, actually. And he's a smart guy. He knows about it. He sees MRIs all the time. Anyway, um, FibroScan, you know, I, you know, I put this in because FibroScan is approved everywhere in the world. Uh, except the U.S., including Canada and Mexico. Uh, it will be approved, according to the company, first quarter of, um, of uh, next year. So should be available to us. It's enormously it's useful instrument. I have one in the office. We use it, you know, 20, 30 times daily. You just put a little ultrasound probe up on a patient's uh, um, uh, liver, and you get a number that tells you what their fibrosis score is. It's enormously useful. It goes from 0 to 75. It actually was invented by the French cheese industry to see if the, um, you know, they got those big wheels of cheese. How are you going to tell if it's ripe in the center? Well, they invented an ultrasound machine to tell. So this is the same thing. It's going to tell you if your liver is ripe, actually. And <clears throat> if it, it, you look, it sends a little Doppler wave back and forth there, and it measures the speed. So actually, it's, it's a little, uh, it's a little, the scale is a little bit skewed. So zero up to 15 is not, or above 15 is cirrhosis. Uh, so it's 0 to 15. It's a little hard sometimes in the center, but it, it actually gives you pretty good numbers. You can do it as many times as you want. So you can do it in three months if you're not. It's a very useful machine. Now, it's even more useful in cases like this because cirrhosis goes from 15 to 75. So you've got a guy who's 15 or 16. He's got cirrhosis. You've got a guy who's, who's, got, who's 48. He's got cirrhosis. Okay, that's actually really um, actually ugly, and there's very good data from the Europeans who use this all the time that suggests anybody with a with a uh, transient elastography score above 45 has about a um, well here. <laughs> I don't want to give it away. Okay, so what's the significance of that transient elastography score? None. Mild cirrhosis. I explained it to you. Moderate cirrhosis. Severe cirrhosis with a high likelihood decompensating over the next 12 months. <clears throat> I already told you the answer to this one, so. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's very useful. It's, a, you know, he, he's got about an 85% chance of crashing and burning in the next 12 months. Um, <clears throat> so he tried Peg and Robivarian for two weeks in 2007, and he stopped the, due to multiple, you know, wine, wine, wine. Couldn't take it, uh, you know, just couldn't take it. Everything heard, uh, you know, you've heard this all before. Um, two weeks, he only gave it two shots and he couldn't do it. Anyway, so he's, con he's, he's convinced this time he wants to do it. So platelets, uh, here we are. So platelets 58, I should tell you in the beginning, so hemophilia, our hemophilia people uh, really insist we not let the platelets go below 50 because then they're at risk for a spontaneous bleed in the head. Normally, I don't worry about platelets. They come out when you need them. Um, they're just hiding in the spleen. There, they'll, you know, I, I don't worry too much about it at all. But if you're hemophiliac, okay, you got a bleed in the head, okay, it, 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 you know, it's an issue. You know, not so much for the for the surgeons, but the radiologist, you know, I probably is, is more of a problem. Um, anyway, so his INR is elevated from his. You can't tell whether it's liver disease or his hemophilia. His vitamin D is 12. His HOMA score is 3.8. Anybody do HOMA scores? You all know what that means? Okay. Um, in the world of hepatitis C treatment, um, 
HOMA score is actually really important. In the world of insulin resistance and diabetes and fatty liver, it's very important. HOMA score stands for homeostasis model assessment. It's fasting serum insulin times fasting serum glucose divided by 22.5. Uh, and it's actually, for the 10 years we had no new drugs for hepatitis C, it's one of the things that we actually focused on a lot uh, because it predicted response to uh, treatment. Um, so it's a, it's a good marker of insulin resistance. Uh, you can do it very easily in, in your lab. Just ask for fasting insulin when you do the fasting glucose and then look it up on the internet and you can do the calculation. Normal is less than two. Um, um, three to four, or two to four is, is, is like uh, sort of the beginnings of uh, pre-diabetes. Over four is significant insulin resistance and probably needs uh, treatment. And um, there's a significant response um, uh, gradation to interferon treatment using these, these scores. AFP is 20. That's not making me too comfortable either. T cells, 215. That's as good as he can get them. Uh, actually, his HIV is less than 50. And his HCV RNA is relatively low, 177. He's genotype 1A, which also makes it more difficult. Uh, I don't know, did Susanna go over that this morning? Okay. So, you know, protease inhibitors work as 1B than, than 1A. That's easy to remember. B is better. Um, and the reason is for, uh, for 1B, they have to make two mutations to get uh, resistance. For A, it's only one step, so it's easier for the virus to get there. Okay. Next slide. There we go. Okay. Uh, so is this low viral load a good or bad prognostic sign? Good sign, bad sign. Start the music. Let's move these along. I don't want to run out of time. Okay. Um, good sign, bad sign, doesn't matter. Okay, well, we've got bars. Okay, um, it's actually usually a good prognostic sign, except for in a guy like this who's got such bad cirrhosis that he's only got six hepatocytes connected by five viruses. Um, and I'm afraid if I take the viruses away, of course, what, you know, what's going to happen? Um, no, but he's got a much lower viral load because he has many, many fewer liver cells that are... Um, um, actually producing virus. So that's actually, on the other hand, it's easier to get it to negative. So it's kind of a mixed blessing here. All right. Child's, Child's Pew. Anybody? Child's Pew, start the music. They know this stuff, right? Um, Child's, Child's Pew. Child's A, B, C, D. This child's went to summer camp. Okay. okay. Actually, you'll, you'll hear about that later. Oh, we got 7%, think, is Child's. Actually, that, that, that is important. Um, all right. Here's the answer. There is no child's D, by the way, um, just to, you know, for those of you. So um, for clinical symptoms, um, it, there's a scoring system here. I'm not going to dwell on this, actually. Um, in INR less than 1.6, so he qualifies there. Alvin, but he actually is, he's actually pretty good except for his bilirubin, and it's really skewed because he's um, taking adizanivir. So it may be artificially elevated. So, so it's, it's hard to do. It. One thing you should remember, there's, uh, you know, there's, livers fail in different ways, and they fail differently. You know, some people have fail differently than others, and they're unlucky, and they don't get a MELD score, even though their liver's completely shot, and they don't get MELD points unless they get a cancer. Others, you know, when you do the child's pew, it's the same thing. Very difficult. It's not like renal failure. They don't, it only really one way. The creatinine goes up. You can measure that. It's easy. Liver fails in like, you know, 12 different ways, and, you know, everybody's different. 
Uh, and they all have different combinations of that, so you kind of have to look, you know, look out for that. All right, so just to, uh, just to remind you, IL-28B test was on the market. It was first discovered in 20, 2009, and then it was on the market by September 2010, so this is what I'm seeing, this guy. Uh, remember, the protease inhibitors were not on the market until really June or July of 2011. So you had, you got, we got nine or ten months to go before proteases. Would you do an IL-28B test? Start the music right now. Um, we don't use it that much anymore. You, I think Susanna did tell you about this, right? Okay. Um, so this is, a, this is an interesting question here. About 54% and then 45%. Okay. Um, will the results change your treatment recommendation? Okay. Run. Run with this one. Okay, look at that. So no, yeah, wh yeah, why did you do the test? The hospital actually beat me up for doing it because uh, apparently they, you know, they get, they get charged by, the, by LabCorp and um, they get reimbursed by the insurance, which is like eight bucks reimbursement for a $300 test. So is it going to change your recommendation? And this guy, uh, well, it might depending on the results, right? Okay, so... He, this is just to remind you of you know, the rest of his labs. Um, he, actually, he actually turned out to be BCC. Okay, so he's IL-28BCC. Would, would that change your mind about treating him sooner or waiting nine or ten months? Good question, right? Actually, I thought we should treat him sooner rather than later because he, I, you know, we had that 48 score or he's got all these terrible markers. Um, so which of these issues also need to be addressed before treatment? So I'm getting ready to treat them right away. You know, um, so you can vote, start the music. Platelets, INR, low vitamin D, high HOMA score, high AFP, HIV markers. What do you think? Okay, platelets, um, like I said, yeah, it's, it's, it's worrisome. You know, when they start low, they don't go that, that much lower, but, you know, we're anticipating a problem with that. Uh, vitamin D is easy. Uh, we definitely worked on that. AFP, we've got to keep watching that thing in his liver, uh, whether it's a regenerative nodule or, um, or something else. Um, that's, that's obviously the big question. So this is the insulin resistance data. Actually, it was slightly out of order. I apologize. This was actually a data that we had re, uh, finally analyzed from our HRN 004 trial that Mark Solkowski and I did in patients who were treated previously, HIV-infected patients previously treated and failed uh, interferon and ribavirin. And when they were retreated with PEG and, uh, and ribavirin, actually, this, is, this mirrors exactly the same as, as in mono-infection. HOMA score was less than 2. Their SVR was 35%. HOMA score was 2 to 4, 14. And look at that, 7. So they're five times more likely to respond to treatment if their HOMA score is normal. So, I mean, now, we don't have any evidence whatsoever to suggest that moving the HOMA score from ear to ear does anything. But clearly, uh, you know, obviously we might as well do that while, you know, while, you know, while we can. It certainly is better for his overall health. And as our HIV patients age, they get non-insulin-dependent diabetes and, in, you know, insulin resistance. Uh, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this is actually very useful. Uh, one thing actually that also, one final point about that is that it's one of the many things 
that is exactly the same in mono-infection as in co-infection. And you'll see that when Susanna shows you the treatment results in mono-infection and co-infection treatment, they're exactly the same. So almost nothing is different in HIV patients. So he, did, he was CC, uh, actually, but he did not want to be treated yet. He wanted to wait for protease inhibitors and only do it once because he had such a bad experience with interferon. Uh, in April of 2011, he sends me an email. This is during, uh, actually, CROI. Uh, have you heard of the telaprevir study in HIV patients presented by Silkowski? Which was, it was the day after, actually. And I replied, did you notice who the second author was? <laughs> and by the way, Silkowski's sitting next to me, and he agrees you need to be treated now, not wait for the damn protease inhibitor. And this is all true. I have the email, actually. Um, so meanwhile, back in radiology, his, uh, his MRI of his abdomen shows cirrhosis, portal hypertension, varices, an increase in the size of this periportal infiltrative lesion, measuring 2.7 by, by 4, um, actually. Uh, and then, of course, clinical aspects of the case will dictate whether this region is appropriate for biopsy. Now, do you all biopsy suspicious masses in the liver? Yes, no, don't know. Okay, don't do it. Don't do it, yeah, right. Um, don't do it. Uh, our, our surgeons are adamant about that, okay? Uh, don't biopsy. Um, it's bad. Okay, you can vote on this now, actually. All right, so start the music. I, we're, we're running out of time. So we're, we're not going to biopsy. We might repeat that. We're going to start the telaprevir peg right away. Start the vitamin D. Uh, treat the homoscore, order thrombopoietin, all of the above. Consult the patient's father, which was a, a fairly, a darely, a, a, yeah. And then refer him to Sokowski in Baltimore. Here, you think Sokowski is so smart, go down there and get treated. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so we actually, you know, we got them all tuned up. Uh, we, we, we didn't have access to protease inhibitors yet. So we gave him vitamin D, we worked on his homoscore, and uh, we'll repeat the MRI in, in, a, in, a, in a few months. Uh, he showed it around to, like, not just to the Yale group, but multiple other groups, and uh, he decided to wait until June, and he's ready to, go to, ready to go on treatment as soon as his kids go to summer camp. Actually, that was why that came from. Anyway, so, um, go ahead and start the music. You want to treat them? Yes, now? No? Stall some more? Send them Dr. Sherman in Cincinnati. Anyway, yes. All right. You guys are willing to treat this difficult cirrhotic. Okay. Good for you. Uh, is the patient's HIV regimen compatible with DAAs? Okay. Start the music. Canalfavir, uh, Mtricitabine, and Adazanavir. You haven't had the drug-drug interaction yet, talk yet, but it's coming this afternoon. Yes, it is, actually. It, is, it, is, it's, it was one of the two uh, regimens that, that were in the study, uh, Adizanavir and, and um, um, uh And actually now it's, it's easy to use Raltagravir, you know, uh, Tenofovir, FTC as well. Raltagravir has no drug interactions. All right, so in preparation for his ch children's summer camp, he goes to see a psychiatrist. He starts citalopram. Actually, you'll, you'll hear in drug-drug interactions, we, ha we have to increase the dose of citalopram because of the, um, of, uh, of the uh, uh, telaprevir. Goes to the gym, reduces his BMI from 34 to 27. 
starts taking vitamin D. It goes up from 12 to 33. He actually so, was so worried about the side effects, he said, can I like tape, you know, sort of start easy with these medications? And he started taking the ribavirin, uh, 1,200 milligrams a day, actually once a day. Too. You, can, you can talk about that th this afternoon with our, our pharmacologist. Uh, actually, uh, two weeks before the PEG started. A couple of people think that's a good idea. The reason is half-life of ribavirin is two weeks, so it takes two weeks to get levels. But this guy, he really was just afraid of all the side effects, so he wanted to do one drug at a time, basically, to see if he could, you know, if he could sort of isolate side effects. So, uh, in retrospect, we can talk about this 1,200 milligram dose. Now, he's a big guy, but uh, still, we, we, we learned a lot about anemia in the last 18 months. So, um, he started later, we, we laddered him in, low escalating dose regimen. So we started him at 90 mics of uh, PEG-alpha-2A um, <clears throat> and telaprevir then with fatty food. Remember, 20, 10 to 20 grams of fatty food, which can be a problem for some of our patients. Peanut butter, you know, bagels, ice cream. Some, some of them actually bulk up a little bit while taking interferon, uh, which is quite unusual for interferon. So after week two, he was undetected. That's a big difference. Remember, the FDA says huge difference between undetected, less than 43, you know, not quantifiable, and 40, less than 43 undetected. This is what you got to be, undetected, if you're going to, uh, you know, make clinical decisions. We increased his PEG up to 135. His hemoglobin was 8 at that point. Platelets were 20,000 at week 4. That's an oh shit moment, right? <laughs> All right. So, what do you do now? Start the music. Um, dose reduce, both PEG and ribavirin. Stop everything. Give up. Start EPO. Start Eltrombopag. Start EPO and Eltrombopag. And dose reduce ribavirin. Yeah, do everything. Actually, I think I agree with 50% of you there, actually. Um, uh, we, I did not dose reduce the, the PEG because that wasn't, I don't think, the major issue. But the... Uh, it's the ribavirin, actually, that we have learned now uh, to start lower with ribavirin dose. We don't use strictly weight-based. We round down on the ribavirin. We also uh, actually start uh, dose-reducing a lot earlier than we, than we used to. And we've only had to transfuse one person now instead of the, the 50 or 60 that we transfused last year. I have this, well, only one transfusion last week, actually, in the last, like, four months. So you really got to go down rapidly on the ribavirin, because remember, two-week half-life of ribavirin. You got to start that EPO really quickly, because it takes two weeks for the EPO to work. So you're going to have those bad two weeks in the middle there, you know, when the hemoglobin, but if he's coming in around 10, okay, you know in two weeks he's going to be five. Okay, so you really have to sort of stop that, you know, as quickly as you can because it's a battleship. You have to turn around. So by week eight, he actually did better. Didn't require a transfusion. Platelets came up to 48. Uh, his ANC is 450. Would you guys use Nupagen on that? That's actually, you know what? No. Because, you know, there's such a thing as marrow fatigue. So... I don't worry so much about the white count either. The ANC in our apricot trial, we had no bacterial infections in 868 patients around the globe. Um, and this guy's he's, he's, you know, he's, he's otherwise uh, pretty healthy. Uh, and I would rather have platelets and red cells than white cells, frankly. Particularly platelets, because an infection you can fix, a bleed in the head, you know, probably not so good. So here's his viral load. 
Actually, nice. Nice. That's a nice curve. So, does he have an ERVR? Susanna told you this. Start the music. They know the answer to this one already. See if they learn. Yes, okay, good. Only 10% weren't listening or didn't, or didn't come this morning, Susanna. Or didn't, hadn't had enough coffee yet. All right, how long do we treat this guy? 3, 6, 9, 12, or 18 months. Start the music. Actually, we, you know, we have had some luck. Um, I think I was telling George at dinner last night, treating our acutes for 12 weeks with telaprevir, with triple therapy. Um, six months. Okay, RGT, right? Following the RGT, uh, nine months. I don't know where that one comes from. Um, and 18 months, that'd be a little tough. Okay, so it's either 12, six or 12 months. All right, here's the here's the data. That here's his data. Okay, you saw this already. Basically, platelets 25, L-trombopag up to 80. Actually, they responded really well. Um, I think we talked about these, so I'm going to skip these in the interest of time. Um, just just as a point of um, uh, uh, of interest, EPO was prohibited in the telaprevir trials. Don't generally use it as much. Bosaprevir, uh, it was it was actually um, used, and 43% of the patients with bosaprevir versus 24 received EPO. Okay, so here's our EPO, here's our Altrombapag, actually, and it works great. All right, so <clears throat> by um, January 2012, he was um, he was at six months. Uh, he did have an obstructive urinary tract infection of a renal calculus. He had herpangina. He had aphthous ulcers in his mouth. He was really miserable. This guy was sucking wind. Like, you, you know, just, he was just awful. Just really, you know, at the depths there. All right, so would you stop this patient at week 24, considering he was undetectable weeks 4 and 12? We actually had this already, so we'll skip this. Uh, the answer is, yeah, the answer is uh, no, because only in non-serotics. So he was cirrhotic at baseline. You can't stop early in this. And actually, in reality, I use this with a lot of uh, trepidation, stopping early. And it depends on the patient. If the guy's 43, not cirrhotic, I'll stop him at 24. The guy's 65, got some fatty liver, you know, uh, he's a little bit, uh, or he's African-American, he's TT. You know, I, I worry about stopping him early, even if he, you know, even if he has, a, you know, a, an RGT. And I'll kind of leave it up to the patient at that point. Okay, so he's still undetectable, still on EPO and Altrombopag, still working. He gets, gets over those, all those other complicated issues. So what are his chances of an SVR if he got out this far? Um, actually, they're, they're pretty good, 90 plus percent, right? So here's what happened. SVR 4, July. SVR 12, September. He's off EPO. Altrombopag gained weight, appears to be cured. Actually, this is, a, this is a cure. Repeat MRI that shows a nodule has resolved and his transient elastography score decreased to 17, which is just a little bit of cirrhosis uh, compared to 48, where he was before. This is really a remarkable reversal. A year's worth of interferon, and he goes down from almost ready to crash and burn to um, negative. The only complication is that the treatment was difficult on his marriage. <coughs> Wife ran off with the Zumba teacher. This, I, I'm not making this up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the father and the brother and the interferon were enough to put her over the edge. Uh, 
actually. So don't, yeah, don't, yeah, make sure your spouse doesn't do Zumba when you're taking interferon. That's important. <laughs> okay. You can't make this up. Okay, do you need to continue screening for HCC? Last question. Yes, okay, good. Susanna, you taught them good. Uh, you absolutely have to. Anybody with, st with stage 3 or 4 disease really needs to be screened for life for HCC, particularly in HIV patients, because I've had them come back, uh, you know, 6, 7, 8, 9 years later, you know, because they go back to their HIV docs and they forget about the hep C, and all of a sudden they have pain. If you have pain from, a, from an HCC, okay, you know, just call the chaplain. Um, <clears throat> Because it's, you know, it's 8, 9, 10 centimeters, and there's almost nothing you can do about it. Uh, and that's really, that's really awful, because actually we should probably put one of these HCC lectures here. The stuff we can do with, with the uh, HCCs up to 5, 6 centimeters, it, they're, they're virtually all curable. If you pick them up soon enough, uh, actually, they're virtually all curable. It's really remarkable, the progress made in HCC. Okay, lessons learned. Last 15 seconds here. Start lower with the ribavirin. Don't use weight-based ribavirin. You know, round it down because, you know, we're going to have, remember, two-week half-life, little SVR. Start the EPO earlier. Don't, don't wait for the EPO. Don't wait to get, to get them below, you know, 10 if you can avoid it. Or if you can't, if you get, bring them back, you know, as soon as you can. Um, and repeat that CBC so you can get the damn insurance company to pay. Lower doses of interferon are also okay. Actually, um, you know, we, we used 135 in this guy and got away with it. He was fine. Um, <clears throat> screen for varices for life. The guy, he needs an endoscopy. He's stalling. Um, surprised, but I'm not surprised. But um, he needs to be screened for those. He needs to be screened for HCC for life. Um, uh, never forget about D, uh, DDI and D4T. Okay, that's a problem. Okay, so you can always have portal hypertension. Uh, in, you know, in these guys, and it can start any time after they've had it. Um, so thank you very much for your attention, and there's a few lessons that hope, I hope you'll remember. Fantastic case, um, and uh, very entertaining, I think we'd all agree. So do we have questions on the clinical management of this uh, radiologist? <laughs> you guys. <laughs> Everyone, uh, we have a, yep. Right if you if you could go to the microphone or just yell really loud, and we'll repeat the question. Good morning. Um, I'm curious why, when the patient's platelets dropped to twenty thousand, um, the peg the uh, peg interferon wasn't stopped, as the cutoff's usually below twenty five. And in this kind of high risk patient, was it because of the platelet stimulating agent that you started? Yeah, because, you know, we, we, we were already using a low dose, mm -hmm. you know, of 135. And this guy is a big guy. You know, he's 200 pounds. So at 90 mics, I don't think, would, would have gotten the job done. And we were at a really important fulcrum there in the, in the treatment. If this was at week 36, I, you know, would have been fine. But at week two, you know, to, when you just started the telaprevir, to leave it hanging out there by itself, what's going to happen? You're going to get resistance. So that's why I, don't wanna, I didn't want to dose reduce the... Um, the peg at that point, just push up the platelets. Okay, great, thank you. Yeah, I think it's actually it's very important to talk about dose reduction of, of peg. And will you comment on um, maybe data that we had prior to the direct acting antivirals of dose of peg and whether 
lower dose maybe does work and maybe we're using too much to begin with for triple combination therapy? Well, actually, there's only one. Well, actually, in the past, for the 10 years, we had nothing to do, basically, but play with doses and the other diseases like insulin resistance between, you know, 2001 and 2011. Uh, that's, we did a lot of this stuff, insulin resistance, you know, doses. But it's very clear from all that data that there was a one-to-one -one relationship between cumulative dose of ribavirin and SVR and cumulative dose of PEG and, rib and, and SVR. So we never, or I never dose reduced if I could possibly get away with it. Absolutely never dose reduced. Now, though, with telaprevir and bosaprevir, it looks like, and there's very strong data in the mono-infection uh, world, and the co-infection, I'm sure, is the same. You can dose-reduce ribavirin, actually, with almost no uh, change in SVR rates. Actually, insulin resistance doesn't seem to make a difference. There was a telaprevir study looking at insulin resistance. That doesn't seem to make a difference. So when you're using really good antivirals, actually, it doesn't, you know, you can dose-reduce both PEG and ribavirin, up to a point, obviously. 200 of PEG and 90 of ribo, you know, mics of ribavirin, not going to make any difference. What Susanna was referring to was the big ideal trial, though, which looked at 1.0 micrograms of uh, PEG alpha to uh, A, uh, B, I'm sorry, and versus 1.5, and there was no difference between 1 and 1.5. So there's probably little difference between PEG alpha to A, 135, and 180 there as well. Uh, as long as you don't get a big guy, you know, who's got a super high viral load of 20 million or something like that. All right. So we have a question here um, with regards to the uh, non-sterotic portal hypertension, DDI, and whether or not there is a similar association with the different um, formulations of DDI. As no, it's not. It's not got nothing to do with the formulation. It's actually there's a gene. Uh, Vincent Soriano in Madrid has done a GWAS trial. He's isolated. I think he's got four genes. It's not as clear cut as IL-28B but he's got a genetic predisposition. Uh, actually, it's not available yet. Uh, it's only sort of pre pre preliminary study. But why did some people actually get DDI and get lactic acidosis and liver failure and die um, you know, right away? And then why do, them, why do some of them have this non-serotic portal hypertension? Apparently, it's, uh, you know, it's, in a, it's, in a, it's in a gene, actually. Uh, so he's identified the, a couple of those genes, and it, you know, it's going in that direction. It does not matter you know, what formulation, whether it was the old chewable you know, thing or the early stuff. It's just DDI in general, and that, that's mitochondrial toxin, and it does weird things. Even later on. That's the scary thing, though. That's the thing you got to think about. They come in with sunken cheeks, check their platelets. Their platelets are less than 100,000. They need an endoscopy before you do anything else, before you do any treatment. That's, I think that's the major thing you got to think about. They're not, and they have the big spleen, it's probably not just from HIV. Big spleen and low platelets means portal hypertension, and you've got to look for varices before you do any uh, interferon treatment. Because if they bleed, it's really messy. I hate that. Do we have any other questions from the audience? Well, is, uh, Would you please comment on the status of clinical trials in HIV and the uh, HIV contact patients and where their status is for the follow-up trials? They're they're, actually, they're doing really well. The, um, you know, uh, uh, Bosepravir, Merck has got a, a phase three trial to, to go for um, for licensing in the ACTG. Uh, Vertex has completed accruing their phase three trial uh, for co-infection. Um, <clears throat> actually, all of the other companies actually th that are expecting approval for their drugs in um, 2014 have big major 
phase 2b3 studies in HIV running in parallel with their big phase 3 trials. So TBATEC, uh, TMC435, which is called Simipravir, uh, trial is fully accrued. Um, the BI1335, which is called Faldapravir, is, is fully accrued, uh, actually in a global trial. Both of those are global trials. BMS, Decladosphere, actually was closed, was fully accrued, and they just reopened it to genotype 1B only. So it looks like when they go to the FDA with their NDA, they will have HIV data to present. So I'm assuming they want it to be part of their package, because it's been an issue. Uh, and even in New York Medicaid, which is very generous, New York managed Medicaid in New York City has been uh, not paying for treatment for HIV patients with protease inhibitors because it's not in the package insert. So anything they can do to avoid, you know, spending this money, they will. And so I think the companies saw that. So now I think with these new drugs, it's all HIV is all going to be in the package insert. So 7977 is actually also just finished uh, accruing their phase three co-infected trial in parallel with their mono-infected trials as well, both for genotype 2 and genotype 1. <clears throat> yeah, without interferon. Currently still enrolling 2-3 treatment experience patients and now open to enrollment for genotype 1. So it's the first interferon-sparing trial in co-infected patients. So I think great news that a lot of this has hit our co-infected patient populations a lot sooner than we had all hoped. Yeah, they're doing it right along with, in parallel with phase three. So it's going to be part of the original package insert because they know the insurance company is not going to let us use it unless it is. All right, we'll take uh, one more question, then we're going to have a 20-minute break with the plan to start back at exactly 11.45 to stay on schedule. So one last question. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because, you know, the fibrosis goes away. You know, we have these people. I have them come in because that's one of the benefits of the FibroScan is we can do um, FibroScan. You're not going to do liver biopsy after, you know, you cure them, but you do the FibroScan, and it's remarkable. They go from stage 3 or stage early stage 4 back to stage 1, 0 or 1. There must be some um, oncologic trigger that goes off when you reach that, you know, stage of cirrhosis. So it's, there's something, you know, about you know, cirrhosis and hep C that causes, you know, HCC to develop. Actually, which is different, remember, from <clears throat> hepatitis B. So one of my other itch issues with my, my ID colleagues, who I, I all get along with famously, is you for, you've gotten spoiled by, by Tru, Truvada, because you forget your patients had hep B, because the last time you did the surface antigen was when they first came in 15 years ago. Okay, those guys need to be screened for HCC even if they haven't got a shred of cirrhosis, uh, because they'll pop up. And when you got, by the time they have pain, like I said, you know, it's just call the chaplain. It's all over. So I think you need to be screening your surface antigen-positive patients for HCC with ultrasound and alpha-feeder protein as well. And your, obviously, your cured hep C patients who had advanced stage disease. Great. Thank you, everyone. Right. So we'll see you back a little bit before um, 11.45 to start the second afternoon session.